0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with Marvin Williams Sr., author of Secondary Break, an NBA Dad's Story, a powerful memoir of one father's journey from his roots in Brooklyn to small town, North Carolina, and the love of basketball instilled in both himself and his son, an NBA player for the Charlotte Hornets. With sharp wit and stark honesty, Marvin recalls growing up in Brooklyn with gangs, the Black Panther Party, and and a diversified community and moving to rural North Carolina where segregation and racial prejudice reigned. Voted one of the best new basketball books in Book Authority's Top 25 Must Reads in 2021. Secondary Break uh, is a great read for any sports fan. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence, and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L I B R O.fm, and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing, and uh, you can join us there and and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, We put out a lot of content on that page, and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our patreon page so join us uh, at patreon or through our website ReadersPodcast.com. but enough of this prologue let's get to today's episode marvin welcome to the show
0: hey thanks for having me
1: yeah yeah and congratulations on the book
0: thank you thank you i really appreciate it
1: yeah let's let's start a little bit with first impressions i picked up the book and uh uh, before I read it and uh you know the title grabbed my attention secondary break. It doesn't say fast break, which is something we know about in basketball, but yeah. secondary break. Tell tell us about the meaning of that title.
0: Well it, it has two two meanings. One is uh you know I feel like God gave me a second chance, a second break in life to uh get it right, so to speak. And then uh I use um uh, my son played at Carolina and uh they used this their secondary break offense. So, like, if they if they can't score quickly on a fast break, then they'll go to what they call their secondary break offense. And so, I kind of it's kind of a devil title. <laughs>
1: All right, that's good. Well, speaking of that, your subtitle for the book is an NBA dad story, and you just mentioned your son playing at uh, Chapel Hill. Um, for listeners of the podcast who don't know much about basketball, maybe don't know much about the Charlotte Hornets um, or your son, tell us a little bit. About your son, uh, how he got into the NBA, and a little bit about his NBA career.
0: Yeah, um, my son's Marvin Williams Jr. He, uh, he grew up in Seattle, Washington. I, I had uh, joined the Navy because of the love of basketball. I ended up joining the Navy and playing basketball for the Navy, and I got stationed in Seattle, Washington. And so when I got stationed in Seattle, Washington, I ended up dating his mom and getting married to her, and then we had him. And uh, after my basketball career was starting to um, wind down, I started coaching. And so he wanted me to start coaching him as an individual. So I started coaching him. And from there he started developing as a really good player. And then he went from in high school, he went from, I think at at 12, he was six foot five. So from, from high school, he became the state best player. Then he blew up to be one of the top 10 players in the nation. And, uh, then he got all these scholarship offers and he eventually settled on um, Carolina, University of North Carolina in 2005 and, uh, he went there, won a national championship. And after that, uh, he, he was the second pick in the 2005 NBA draft, and so I, I, I helped manage his career for the past 15, 16 years.
1: Yeah, now these were all aspirations that uh, you had. We're going to talk a little bit about your basketball uh, journey, uh, but you didn't make it to the NBA, and uh, so how does it feel, you know, for you not to make it, but for your son to do what he did?
0: I think it's a blessing. I, I think, I think, uh, God was looking out for me and, uh, even though he didn't fulfill my personal dreams, he fulfilled it through another way. And, and I'm just as happy as if I had done it.
1: That's great. Uh, the book, the book cover, uh, Marvin also features, uh, a silhouette of, uh, looks like a young man, uh, shooting baskets. Uh, the, the basket is kind of forlorn. The, 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 the net is torn, probably like you might find on most uh, rural back, you know, yard basketball courts. Is that sort of uh, emblematic of uh, how you grew up playing basketball, just wherever and whenever you could?
0: Yep, that's that's that's, a, that's a, the perfect picture of it. <laughs> there, was, there was times we, uh, you know, I grew up we couldn't afford a real rim, so my dad used to take this the, the uh, a bicycle tire and take all the spokes out and and nail it up to the tree. And so we would play like that for a while. And then uh, I would go down to one of my neighbor's houses and they would have, you know, they would have the Rams just like that. We'd play so much. You, could, you couldn't you could afford nets. So <laughs> whenever you got a net, you just made your last, you know, it may last about five or six months. And then you play without the net after a while. That's, you know?
1: that's true. I can, I can remember playing without the net sometimes. It throws your perception off a little bit. Yeah, that's you, true. You, you, yeah. You, get, you get used to it. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a memoir that you've written uh, and and writing a memoir, you know, is a challenge. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but why did you want to do that? Cause it's not, some would say it's not even e- as easy as just going in the backyard and shooting ba- baskets. It's, it's, it's something you'd never done before. Talk about why you wanted to do that.
0: Uh, yeah, it's something I've never done before. And uh, there's a couple of reasons. I think for me, I uh, had got to the point in my life. I had my um, my pastor that we had in uh, Bishop who passed away, uh, and I mentioned him in the book. He had been on me. And he he felt like more of I followed you since you was nineteen years old, and I've watched your, your your life and your career. And I think you have a story here that you should tell um, to inspire other people. And so I gave that some thought. And so finally one day I was sitting out back and uh, looking around and, and feeling and, and giving thanks to God for all the blessings that I had, thinking about where I come from and where i'm at now and so i decided to write the book
1: mm, that's great just decided to do it huh mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay well uh, you do mention uh, you know the uh the bishop in the front of your book you you dedicate the book in memory of him um before we dive into the book a couple of items of interest i noticed you're a navy veteran yeah. um why the navy and what did you learn through that journey in your life
0: uh, i tell you, I was, I was playing basketball one day in, at home, and, and I had a few scholarship offers, but I wasn't I wasn't really committed and ready to go to college. But my dad and my mom was always taking me on these visits, and my dad got frustrated because we went so many visits, and I didn't make a decision. So he told me, hey, man, you got to do something. So I, um, I went shooting one day, and Michael Jordan's brother, Larry Jordan, was out there, and we was talking and shooting. He said, hey, man, you know, you, know you get paid to play basketball in the Navy. I said, really? He said, yeah. And, you know, I wanted to help my mom, you know, find some way to help my mom financially. So I said, I'll I join. So I joined. And uh, when I joined, uh, they found out once I got on the ship and got myself, you know, organized and met people that uh, I could play basketball. So we organized a ship's basketball team.
1: So how is it playing basketball on a ship? <laughs> it seems it's to
0: be difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. out there because they have a big open – deck with um on the inside of the ship as well on the outside and so they rolled the uh baskets out but when the ship turns or tilts it's all over man <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you ever have any basketballs go over the side
0: oh yeah we had a few of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: that's pretty interesting uh so what 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 did you learn from that experience being in the navy
0: i learned that um uh, i learned how to grow up I learned uh, boot camp. Boot camp back then was a little tougher than what it is now. Uh, I learned discipline. I learned that uh, just getting through boot camp back in those days uh, taught you the ability to say, "Okay, if I can get through boot camp as tough as it is, I can get through anything." So it, it taught me. It taught me self confidence. It taught me discipline, and, uh, and it, it helped me stay focused on goals.
1: Mm, that's good. Now, you mentioned something else uh, before getting get the book, members of the Fathers and Men of Professional Basketball Players organization. Tell us what that organization is and its purpose.
0: Well, um, it, it, it started, um, it's, a, it's about a, a bunch of dads, NBA dads, who uh, what we do is we let people know that, you know, because the media portrays um, um, black athletes specifically as, most of the time, it's always their mom. There's no dads in the picture, when, when really there is. A lot of these dads uh, that are in our organization, which is headed by our president is Chris Paul, um, Charles Paul Sr., Chris Paul's dad. Um, it's headed by him, and our goal is to let people know that, uh, you know, dads, these kids do have dads, and then we also, our goal is to go to communities where there's, where there's not a lot of dads in the household and try to figure out how we can get them guys back in the household or how we can help financially with some of these families who don't have um, dads in the house. So we travel all over the country before COVID. We was traveling all over the country doing things, taking kids, shopping, uh, and doing all kinds of events. Um, We did the time joining um, his cruise. We did that event. We did a lot of money to charity and and to education.
1: Mm, That's great. Now you've also coached basketball. Uh, your bio says for thirty plus years. Um, you know, having read the book, I sort of saw that you had kind of a a love hate love relationship with basketball. Uh, <laughs> you know, what what made you stick with coaching for thirty plus years?
0: Well, I, I realized that I enjoyed it, and actually, it was funny because you're right. I um, I had those moments like when I when I didn't get when I quit and didn't get get to the league. I said, well. I'm I'm just not gonna mess with it basketball at all anymore. But my girlfriend at that time taught me into coaching, and then coaching girls was was so much fun. And and uh, we would do it during the regular high school season, and then during the summer, we would have a what we call an AAU traveling team. And so we would travel all over the country during the summer with the girls basketball team, competing all over the world, all over the country. And I, and yeah, I, I, I
1: didn't I didn't coach on your level, but I coached our girls. Uh, church basketball team from the time they were six until they graduated high school, and I can tell you, having coached boys in baseball and football, uh, the girls seem to want to work together, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 they, you know, they really do have a good time playing together. Where sometimes, you know, the boys some of them try to take over and do different things and be the star, but I found that the girls, you know, that's team team basketball, you know,
0: right, right, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, and they and they. And the thing about them I learned uh, dealing with them is if they, if they love you, they'll walk through a wall for you. Guys, on yeah. the other hand, they not kidding. And, and you know, girl is we, but God is me, you know?
1: Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of noticed that too. All right, well, look, uh, let's do this. Uh, we're going to have an author reading in just a minute. Before we do that, uh, uh, your book starts out when you're a young boy, you're living in Brooklyn, New York. Um, let's talk about that setting for a minute uh, and how it was to grow up in Brooklyn.
0: I love, you know, back during the 60s, I was born in 1964. So during the 60s and, 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 and mid-70s, I loved New York. Um, I lived there till I was 13. Uh, um, probably 1972, 1973, we left and moved to a little town in Wallace, North Carolina. Um, I loved New York at that time because everybody seemed to want to work together. Even though there was racial issues going on in the city, um, you could trust your neighbor. So uh, I remember when I was a kid, we used to get fresh milk. From the truck and they would put it out on your stoop and nobody would mess with it. But nowadays, you couldn't do that. You
1: know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but- I, also, I also noticed that you said during that time that uh, everybody in the neighborhood was a parent, whether they were your parent or not.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 If you acted up and, and one of your neighbors saw you, they got permission from your parents to keep you <laughs> <a> business. <laughs> yeah. They got permission. Yeah. To your so yeah. they, you gotta know teach you how to behave.
1: Yeah, that's good. Um, all right, well, let's do this. Uh, we do this on Charlotte Rears Podcast. Uh, we have the author read a part of the uh, book. This is from early in the book. I asked you to read this because there's a there's a piece of it I enjoy, and I want to talk to you about it after you finish. So uh, uh, whenever you're ready, uh, you're talking about uh, living on Legion Street. Is that in Brooklyn?
0: Yeah, uh, Brooklyn, okay. New York. Yeah.
1: Okay, so, so that sets the setting of where we are. And how old were you at this time?
0: I was probably 10.
1: Okay, all right. Well, anytime you're ready, take it away.
0: Okay. Living on Legion Street was a time where everyone was allowed to be in everyone else's business because it helped everyone stay safe. If a kid was in the middle of the street acting a fool, any neighborhood parent could come on and pull them by the ear and pop them with the switch. And then they took the kid to their parents or grandparents to report what they did. Every kid on the block Knew if a neighbor witnessed them being bad out in the street and brought them to their family, the punishment they had coming from the family would be twice as as bad. They would get their ass beat once because they did something bad and the second time because they embarrassed the family. Kids knew they were better off being good or at least acting that way. The community embraced each other, protected each other, watched out for each other because typically everyone was in the same or similar situation. Families with working or trying to work, parents just trying to survive. For the better or the worse, some of the best lessons of my life were hand in hand with the hardness. The community was real back then. Every Sunday, like clockwork, the whole family would come out to gather on the stoop like a family reunion. This family reunion took place not just with our family, but with most of the families in our community. For me, it was my mom and my my dad, brother, sister, cousin, Madeline and Marie, Aunt Pearl, Mary, and Thelma, and also my uncles, Rudy, sometimes Kirby Lee, who lived in Philadelphia. It always felt like we had enough food to feed the whole block all of the food that makes the black family gather again and again. macaroni and cheese, ham, greens, baked beans, cornbread, and more, all cooked in perfection, with every every cake and pie imaginable available as well. What I like to remember is the great pigeon wars. See every building or most of them had open rooftops and most rooftops had a pigeon coop. Flying pigeons became our our thing, something to make our dad proud. It worked like this. My father would go and buy us, say, half a dozen homing pigeons. We'd keep keep them in the um, coop for a while to get them used to us and and their um, coop. The key here was the color. Our coop would be painted a bright blue. A building two streets away might have one bright red inside and out. The birds would then associate their color to their home flock. Then this is where it it got fun because you would keep an eye out for when your neighbor let his birds out to fly. We would jump up and let out our flock. When herds got close and, and let the birds mix, then whistle for them to come back. If your birds were smarter than theirs, then they, they'd pull the whole mixed flock back to your coop and suddenly you have got all the birds or you lost them all two smarter birds in a sharper whistle
1: That's, that sounds fun um, you know I've seen that uh, but I didn't I've never talked to anybody that actually experienced it so you actually you did actually engaged in this you'd have these little contests and put the birds up and try to call them back.
0: Yeah, so so it's it's kind of like what Mike Tyson. You you, you hear people talk about Mike Tyson a lot. Brazen birds. Um, my neighbor, see, I had a I had a build a box like a, they call it a pigeon coop, and I would paint mine. I would get the pigeons and paint them painted blue, and then I would buy the pigeons. I paint the blue inside and out, and put the pigeons in there for maybe six weeks, and so they'll get used to the color blue. And after six weeks, you take them out and let them sit on top of your the, um, the pigeon coop, and they'll see blue again. And so they eventually they get so comfortable being that's their home. So when uh, my neighbor would fly his birds, I would fly mines. And if mines got mixed up with his and they came back to my house, then I got to keep the birds. And the birds <laughs> were expensive back then. And so I remember uh, my uh, one, of the, one of the store owners up, up the street from us, his nephew had uh, a whole bunch of pigeons. He probably had like 30 pigeons and we had like about maybe 12. And ours got mixed up with his and he took our pigeons. And uh, my dad went down there to try to talk to him to get them back. And he said, no, you know the rules. You can get them back. So then vice versa happened. We took all their pigeons and they tried to get them back from us. And we said, No, you know the rules. You get
1: <laughs> that's great. That's great. Uh, well uh you also mentioned in here uh the food and you know, the macaroni and cheese, the ham greens, baked beans. You said the kind of thing that brings a black family together. That might bring a lot of families together. That's uh that <laughs> yeah, like, that's yeah. That sounds like good food. Uh
0: yeah.
1: Well well, let's do this. Um, you know. You wrote this book in first person. Um, one of the things you talk about, um, which I want to explore with you, you talk about the fact that you came to some extent from a dysfunctional family. Uh, and yet you thank your family and your parents, you know, in the acknowledgements of the book. So um, I guess there's a little bit of conflict there, but in the end, things seem to work out. Talk a little bit about that for a second.
0: Yeah. I come from, you know, during the time my, my mom and dad was, was, would drink a lot and fight a lot. They would end up, when they get to the drinking, they start fighting and hurting each other. And then us as kids would get in the middle and end up getting hurt over the years. So this went on for a lot of years. And so at one point, my mom moved us to North Carolina and my dad stayed in New York. And uh, so then my dad, after about a couple of, year, couple of years, he came back and uh, we we found a place to stay because we were with my grandmother. And so after we... uh. Found a place to stay. My dad came back, and then the fight continued. It continued all the way throughout my whole life, basically, till I left home. Um, but at the same time, my dad was a great man, and my mom was great because they taught you the hard lessons of life. You know, my dad wasn't very educated. He, uh, I think, he finished sixth grade, but he served in the military. He was in the military. He was a vet um, in, a, in a war. He's a tank driver. And my mom, she was always always motivating. She didn't care what you, if you thought of you, if you thought at that time you can go to the moon, she would tell you, you better try to go to the moon, if that's what you believe you can do. And so there was lessons that they were teaching us throughout our lives. That was great stuff, but it also conflicted with their behavior and, and, and their behavior, how it affected us. And so I think mm-hmm. part of writing this book was a cleansing for me, a spiritual cleansing for me to try to get myself past all that and to understand and, you know, to, not to let them off the hook, but to understand what they might have been going through in their own personal lives to uh, cause those kind of issues for us.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, but then uh, eventually moving to North Carolina. And you talk about the difference between uh, living in Brooklyn, and living in a, a rural area and sort of the culture shock you underwent and also the racism and segregation you experienced uh there. Were you, you were in a rural area of North Carolina at the time? Yeah, right? I was in a little
0: small town. I was in a little town called Wallace, North Carolina. And, you know, back then when I grew up, uh, you, we used to go, when I was living in New York, we used to go every summer back to my grandmother's house and, and then help, her help crop tobacco with the local farms. And uh, they all just happened to be white. And so then we finally moved down there. And then I wasn't quite exposed to it during the summer as I was, but you could feel it as I was once we moved down there. So we moved down and permanently, you see it on a day-to-day basis, man. They didn't want you coming in their restaurants. They looked at you like you were crazy, but they want you to crop in their fields. And then they would have you out there. And you, you start Your day might start at 530 in the morning, and uh, you don't get no lunch unless they feel like giving you lunch, and you just crop until they get the job done. It might be 730, 8 o'clock at night.
1: That's got to be one of the hottest and difficult jobs you've probably done in your life. Yes, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> I look, Yeah. It, 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 you wake up, yeah. You wake up, you wake up, go in the field cause it's all wet and moist and, and damp. And, uh, <clears throat> I've, I've had moments where I cropped the back and you couldn't see, you grab a snake and throw them on, your arm <laughs> and then you take it to the, to the truck to drop the back off and then the snake crawls out. Yeah. Those moments. will, you know, it'd be dark, pitch dark when you start. And then, uh, you just crop throughout the day and to get it done until seven, or eight o'clock at night.
1: Yeah. Um, you also talked about the impact uh, when you were in New York. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember whether this before or after you went to North Carolina, but the influence of things like the the Black Panther Party, the the New York gangs, uh, uh the killing of young black men by police, did you experience some of that and how did that affect your life?
0: Yeah, I did. Uh the kid, the kid that got killed um it was it was a misfortune accident. I I you know, uh, this lady had this white lady had asked this young young black kid. He wanted to make some money. He was, he was like two blocks over from my, where I grew up at, and so he went around asking people, could he find some work to do? So the lady told him, she said, "Yeah, you can clean my basement for me." So he she told him what to do. She said, "Hey, go down when you when you when you come in, go down through the basement. Don't come at the front door." She leave, she left it open, unlocked for him. So when he got from school, he went down and did what he was told to do. He went down the suite and sweeping, and she forgot that she had told him that he could do that. And so she thought she'd being robbed. She called the police. And so then the police came and uh before they could even ask what the kid's doing, they seen him, they thought he had a gun or something, they shot him and killed him. And so they tried to sweep it under the rug and like like it was an accident, don't worry about it, move on. But the lady, she I guess her conscience got the best of it. She turned herself in and she told him that that uh she had made a mistake and uh that she felt sorry for get, killing the kid. The Black Panther was one of I think Sometimes America portrays those guys as, 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 as terrorists, which I, if you grew up with them and understood what their purpose was, it wasn't never terrorism. What those guys did for black people back when I was coming up was they provided us, you know, those fam- families that, you know, when the only time a kid got to eat was when they went to school, you know. And so when, it, when, when school was out and you had long summers, those guys organized it so that every person, every block, you can go and get you three meals still every day while he was out as a kid and so we love i love i love new york city and i love the black pants for all the stuff that they did and they all, they also you know stuck up for us when there was injustice and i really appreciated that growing up in at that time
1: yeah well you did have a lot of varied experiences uh growing up and uh you know you went through uh several relationships and that kind of thing and uh (laughs) so so what kind of place are you in now I mean, are you are you, are you settled and got your your mind right and all that stuff? Or?
0: Yeah, I'm settled. I'm settled now. Yeah, I, I'm at the age now. I have to be settled. You know, <laughs> you know when I was going through the different phases, I was, I was a little youngster then. I've gotten yeah. go a little wiser, and I and I learned to slow down and appreciate life a lot more.
1: When did your son finally tell you, Dad? I got this basketball thing. I don't need any more advice about how to how to play basketball.
0: Never. Never. No, I've always coached him. Even when he was in the NBA, he, t- he would tell his coaches, "No, y'all can't touch my shot. I let my dad come in and do it." And so we get up. We get up early in the morning before practice and spend a couple of hours shooting. And I'll tweak his shot, or he would. Uh, he, we would work late at night after a game or something.
1: That's great. That's
0: always. Great. He's always he's always been a great student. He's been a great person. He's always trusted me and relied on me, and I appreciate that a lot.
1: Well, I enjoy reading memoirs where they put pictures in the book, and you've got some great photographs here in the book of uh, you and your family. Lots of smiles here. Uh, You probably had plenty of uh, things to choose from. Um, Is there a favorite photograph that you remember that you you have in the book?
0: Um, In terms of my family, I I mean, I've had some great moments. I think one of the moments I've enjoyed in the book was in Chapter 14 where I, I brought a group of kids out of New York, um, I brought a group of kids out of New York to uh, play in my AAU boys team down here in Charlotte, and then we ended up winning a national championship. Mm. I, think, I think that was probably my ultimate, probably one of my favorite moments.
1: That's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about writing uh, life for a minute. Uh, you've you've only written the one book, uh, but uh, it uh, and we talked earlier about the fact that there might be some challenges. What did you find about uh, writing a book that was most challenging for you?
0: Uh, I, I think when people start writing books, you want to be perfect out the gate and and i and I found that i had to i had to force myself for one thing just to write don't worry about if it's correct don't worry about if it's if it's if it's long or short since it's long or short just write and once I got to that stage where I just made myself every night before I went to bed i had to I had to discipline myself that I have to write one hour no matter what it said or how it looked as long as I did that, and I did that every day for a year. And so – and then after that, once you get to that stage, I think then you start editing and figuring out sentence structure and all that stuff. But I think a lot of people uh, fear writing because it's such a – it sounds like it's an overwhelming process, which really, if you break it down into parts, it's not. Yeah,
1: that's that's good advice. I think uh, when you sit down and start thinking about writing a novel and you look at uh, how long it can be or a long memoir, you're thinking, God, I don't know that I have time for this. But if you just write – you know, a page a day. Well, at the end of the year, you've got three hundred and sixty-five pages. You know. Yes. Absolutely. So, you know, and uh, and it sounds like were well, you disciplined in meeting that hour every every day?
0: Yes. Yeah. I I enjoy. It. I look forward to it. Oh, yes. That's
1: great. That's great. Yeah. So, so the a lot of times authors say, you know, the the real work comes in the editing stage. Did yes. you have some? Did you have some help with that? Did you have some editors that told you what you needed to fix and those kind of things?
0: Yeah, I was lucky cuz I got a I got a cousin that's a teacher here in Charlotte. And so I would run my stuff past her and she would edit it and then I would also have uh some other people uh edit it for me. I had like two mm-hmm. people edit it for me. I had two editors.
1: That's great. And that's you can never have too many editors uh right. getting feedback. One thing you mentioned in the author's note is that uh uh, this is a work of nonfiction, and you recorded the events as honestly and faithfully as you can re- remember. Now, memory is one of those things that can be fickle at times, particularly as we get older, and it's, it's often based on your perception as to what happened. Did you ever ha- ask yourself through this process, "Did I get that right? Do I need to go ask somebody?"
0: <laughs> uh, no, I made, I made sure that I made sure that. Um... I put that in the front page of the book <laughs> to tell people that if, if there's some things I missed, this is just my perception of it. So don't right. take it to heart. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, so as you as you look back on this book, um, you know all the work you put into it, um, the stories you've told, the lessons you've shared, the struggles that you went. Well, first of all, let me ask you this: you shared a lot of personal information in this book. Um, was that? Hard for you to do. I mean, did you ever say, "Wait a minute, I probably shouldn't put that in," but you put it in anyway?
0: Well, yeah, the, 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 yeah, I, I caught some backlash for that. I, I got some backlash from the family for that. But that—that's how you know. Again, that was how I felt during those periods in my life. So it wasn't really more about the family, but it, the, the family just happened to be a part of my life. So I really was expressing how I was feeling as a, during those moments in my life. So yeah, it was hard. It was, it was it, my, my one friend. He says, man, that was kind of a raw raw book he wrote. But I I felt like I had to get it out there.
1: Yeah. And also, um, you know, memoirs say that, you know, uh, had Judy Goldman on the show, and she talked about how when you're writing memoir, you need to be twice as hard on yourself as everyone else. And you do uh, admit to, you know, the mistakes you made in your life, you know, the things that you did uh, looking back, and you've got more clarity now. So at least you didn't pull back on yourself and uh, when you went through that process. Um, now that you're done with the book and looking back, um, what do you hope people who read this book take away from what you've written?
0: Well, there's, uh, there's a couple of things. I'm hoping one that inspires people to say, okay, I, I'm in a tough environment, but this guy got out and he, he became successful. So maybe I can too. That that would be the first thing to inspire somebody. And it, um, the second thing would be to help people to understand the uh as parents the things that you do how it affects your kids later down in life so mm-hmm. i hope that a parent will read it and understand the process okay this kid violence or, or anger isn't good or drinking isn't good um because it'll affect my behavior will affect um, my kids um like down the road so yeah. that's, that's another thing i hope it, it, it uh it does
1: yeah well i enjoyed reading it uh uh thanks for your honesty and uh looks like uh it was cathartic for you because uh once you got that down on paper, you can uh, you can move forward to the next phase of your life.
0: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Well, look, uh, Marvin, I want to thank you for uh, sharing your book and your story with uh, our listeners on Charlotte Reader's podcast.
0: I thank you so much for taking the time uh, and uh, having the patience to help me go here. <laughs> I really thank you so much. And I thank you all the listeners for uh, taking the time to listen to my interview.
1: Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.